Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. once more for another story shaped podcast episode and today we have a fantastic uh, guest talking to us and um, today we are talking to the fantastic Ashlyn O'Loughlin. Ashlyn grew up in Dublin and was that rarest and most spectacular of things a published author in her teens which I'm very very uh, very envious of. Um, while still at secondary school um, Ashlyn published a series of extremely fun sounding books with titles like Cinderella's Fella, Young the Cool and Shaq and the Beanstalk <laughs> before moving to Canada, starting her family and then finding her way back to home to Ireland. She now lives with her family in Waterford and has published an utterly fantastic, oh, sorry, <laughs> uh, young adult novel, uh, her YA debut uh, titled Big Bad Me. Uh, Big Bad Me came out in early October 2022 from Little Island Books and it was described by no less a critic than me as freaking amazing, which it truly is. Uh, the book is so much fun and plays so knowledgeably with tropes and ideas familiar to anyone who has even a passing familiarity with vampire and werewolf lore. And it truly does fill that buffy shaped hole in your soul. And we are so delighted to welcome Ashlyn to Story Shaped Podcast today. Steaks at the ready. Good, well, <laughs> good morning, Ashlyn. And how are you? Welcome. Welcome, Ashlyn. Hi, thank you. I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, I really, really, I really, really enjoyed your book. Uh, Me it was so too. much fun. Really enjoyed it. Uh, it was great. I love a, a YA novel that's, uh, you know, genuinely gory and genuinely has its moments of horror, but also has moments of absolute hilarity as well, and and just ends on such a such a fun and upbeat note. And uh, you just you really, you really did uh, achieve something wonderful with that with that book. Um, but I haven't had the pleasure of reading your your earlier novels, but. I'm amazed uh, that you, you you had that achievement as a as a teenager. How how was it to be published in your in your teens? Ashton? was it was it amazing? It was really cool. Yeah. Um. So I started off writing when I was when I was really really young because my dad is a writer. Oh. Um. Now he he wasn't published when um when my first book was published. His first book actually came out two weeks after mine. That's amazing. Sure. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but because I'd grown up with him constantly writing stories and sending them out um, and getting them back with nice rejection slips. Um, and it, this was like, you know, back in the, the 80s and 90s. So there was no subtle querying on your computer. Everything was like giant packets. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> when that got a giant packet back from a publisher, I knew that was bad news um, <laughs> because they were returning his manuscript. Um, so I saw that happen a lot and I saw him build his collection of rejection forms um, to the point where I genuinely sort of thought that it was his hobby, like, but he explained to me what he was doing and, you know, you, you have to try and you have to keep trying and eventually maybe you get lucky, um, but the thing is you write because you love it. So I always knew that and I knew that his books were my favourite books in the world and if the publisher didn't want them, then it didn't necessarily mean he was a bad writer, it just meant he hadn't found the right publisher. So when I was... 13, 12 or 13, I started writing a story called Cinderella's Fellow, which was just 
Cinderella from the Prince is point of view. And I wrote it just for myself, just for fun, just to see what the Prince had been up to when uh, Cinderella was, you know, dealing with her stepsisters and her stepmother and going to the ball, what was his side of the story. And it was a lot of fun to do. Um, I always felt that step, step family got a very bad deal. So I, I made sure to give the Prince stepsisters and the stepmom as well. Um, they wanted to balance that out and I never really thought it was going to be published but I did think it was a good place to start I thought well you know what if I'm going to start trying to get published as I know I want to someday I need to start the, the submission process I need to start doing what my dad does and build my collection of rejection slips because that means that maybe I'll be a little bit closer to being published by the time I'm in my 20s or my 30s um, so I hadn't really expected it to get collect to get picked up by a publisher. Um, but my dad sat me down with the writers and artists yearbook and the phone and was like, okay, you need to start ringing publishers and find out if they're looking for what you're looking for. Because I mean, today that would be crazy. That would be, you know, ringing publishers um, would <laughs> get you on some sort of blacklist possibly. <laughs> you couldn't just go to their website and look at what they, what they published and what they were looking for. So I did. I, I started ringing around and a very lovely lady said, you know what, that sounds lovely. And aren't you great for, you know, writing something and, and trying to get published so young? Why don't you send it in? Um, and I, I got a few no's as well. Um, and I, I sent it in. It didn't occur to me to try anyone else while I was waiting to hear back because it cost a lot to submit a manuscript. Um, and so I, I just waited and I heard back about six months later I got a phone call where they actually said yeah we like it but you know it's a bit short because it was it was 28 84 pages printed out um and they said would you would you like to maybe try writing another one we could publish with it so I went through all my all the fairy tales I knew and loved and had grown up with and decided Rumpelstiltskin had maybe also gotten a bad deal um because really you know maybe he was just a, a good foster dad to uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I was, I was looking at, you know, what kind of a mom agrees to just, you know, give away her firstborn to a complete stranger like that. And I thought, like, you know, I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of reasons. I just wanted something that would make Rumpelstiltskin very sympathetic and not the bad guy. Um, so I turned the princess into a, a bit of a spoiled brat. I turned Rumpelstiltskin into a good guy and a nice foster dad. Um, and I... I played with that, I sent it back, and in the end, they liked them both so much, they, they published them separately. Um, and it was very cool. And I got to do an upload of school visits and go around teaching other kids how to write stories, um, which was really fun. What a brilliant lesson to learn from your dad, to know, to see that the, the value of writing is in the writing itself, and it's not in the recognition or lack of recognition that you get yeah. from the outside world so I love I love what you said about that it wasn't that it wasn't going to get published but it was just that he hadn't found the right publisher yet so I just I think that's such a brilliant a, such a brilliant lesson to learn so early and you're such a brilliant example of that because you went you, you wrote and you wrote for yourself um, and then you sent it out and it didn't it didn't really matter to you whether it got published or not but it yeah. did and congratulations thank you it's, it's it's different as a teenager I think when you really have uh when you really have like oh sure I'll give it a shot we'll see what happens um 
yeah, that kind of devil may care attitude yeah. type thing. It's yeah. not it's not an all or nothing thing. Like it might be when you're older. Yeah, that's. I just I just when I look back to my own teens and the you know the nonsense I was trying to write, the idea of actually letting anybody else see it. Oh my god! So I'm just I'm amazed by the bravery of anybody who who uh, who is able to do that in their teens. It's just it's incredible. Um, but I just, I love and was was Cinderella's fellow the first thing you ever tried? You know, I don't I know it's not, not the first thing you wrote. You said you were writing since you were quite young. But is it the first thing you wrote? Kind of with the intention of uh, this could be something else or, or or was it the first um kind of thing that she said this is kind of serious I'm taking this seriously now or was it, what what made it different why was Cinderella's fella the thing that she sent off to the publisher so I I think I took everything that I wrote really seriously um I wrote plays and I wrote screenplays in quotation marks <laughs> that um that myself and my sister and friends would always talk about filming on a little video camera and never did um and I I was always very serious about it I would, I would always get the head down and this would be my project and this would be what I was doing and I would rewrite it and rework it just for myself um what made Cinderella's fella different I think was that I let other people read it uh people were saying you know I, I actually think that it, it could get published and I never really believed that it would just because I always fully believed that my dad's stuff would get published um I knew how great that was and I was just thought maybe it was it was a good one to start with because so many other people were suggesting it um so it was the first one that made me think sure it's worth a shot maybe maybe this one is something that I do something with as a starter querying book um but in terms of taking it seriously I didn't take it any more seriously than I'd taken anything else because I was always serious about my writing for myself um it was also the first thing that I redrafted six times, I think. Um, but that was because it was the 90s and I was bad at technology and I kept accidentally deleting it. For... <laughs> <laughs> I think at one point I just accidentally converted it to Wingdings, but I couldn't oh, figure no. out what I'd done. Oh, no. So I just started the whole thing again. <laughs> Oh, good old wingdings. Yeah. <laughs> That's a blast in the past. Um, and I, it's something else that struck me about the, the the work that you put out so far is is the, the brilliant titles they have. I mean, you must have a real love for, I suppose, puns or or you know, they're really clever. I mean, Cinderella's fella is just hilarious. Like, and I I loved the one as well. I wrote um or that you wrote, uh yeah, Fionn the Cool. I mean, Fionn the Cool Fionn is the so cool. simple, so but perfect, so, but so brilliant. I mean, I can't believe I have never heard. I never that never occurred to me that you could say Fionn the Cool rather than Fionn. <laughs> Mukul and it's just it's so simple but so effective um and I think you carried that through into your into your most recent book the I mean Big Bad Me is such a fantastic title <laughs> it's really clever um and are your titles all kind of did, did you get editorial feedback on titles or, or did you kind of come up with them yourself I know titles can be sometimes a kind of a like a collaborative thing with your publisher mm-hmm. or, or was it was did that come from you um, I really love coming up with titles I know a lot of writers hate it I love it and I love brainstorming and playing with them um the second one a right royal pain Rumpelstiltskin the true story is probably <laughs> the worst title that I have um but it's also the one that I I struggled with I had Cinderella's fella and that came the title came first I just thought of Cinderella's fella okay that would be about Prince Charming okay what would his side of the story be I wrote Rumpelstiltskin first and I didn't have any kind of a pun I really wanted it to be a pun. Pretty hard um, to pun Rumpelstiltskin. 
and I tried I had sheets of sheets of very bad poems that I can't remember now um so we actually nicked that one off Beyond the Cool um which I had written by the time Rumpelstiltskin was going uh, right Royal Payne was going to publication um I'd written a draft of Beyond the Cool um and I called it a right Royal Payne because in it there's a prince who is a right Royal Payne <laughs> and it was just a placeholder title for Beyond the Cool well I tried you would think that would be obvious Beyond <laughs> the Cool um but I didn't I didn't come up with that straight away and um, so I just I knew that a right royal pain suited the obnoxious princess, so I nicked it um, and put it on the other book and then had to come up with something for Fiona the Cool. But it was never um, one of those back and forth things with marketing where you struggle for a very long time. Um, I always had fun coming up with them and I really enjoy playing with it. Big Bad Me as well has been Big Bad Me since the very first draft. Since I mean, it's perfect. Yeah. So. Thank you. <laughs> That's really so <laughs> obviously fairy tales and myths were hugely important to you growing up yes. let me talk a bit more about the influence the, the story influences that propelled you into writing yourself um yeah I mean for sure fairy tales and myths I would absolutely devour and we had huge tomes of them at home we had like big hardback versions of Grimm's fairy tales and Hans Christian Andersen that I would read and read and read over and over again. I loved the goriness of them, of the original. You know, I, I was like seven or eight reading these, and they're probably my first introduction into horror because some of them are, you know, properly grim. Um, and they, I loved it. I loved how dark they were. I loved the original Cinderella where the stepsisters like chop off their toes and they chop off their heels to fit into the glass slipper, and the birds are like, oh, look down and you'll see this isn't the girl you're going to marry in the prince who's blood pouring all over the carriage and the gory punishments that, um, that, that the villains face in these stories. And, and then, probably not surprisingly, I also liked Roald Dahl for almost exactly the same reason. They were gory and they were dark for kids, but they're also really, really funny. Um, and I think probably like a lot of writers, I was obsessed with Matilda growing up, absolutely obsessed. I mean, I would read everything and anything. And so Matilda was my little literary soulmate, but I would spend an awful lot of time sitting at home, staring at pencils and things, trying to get them to move. Just because if Matilda could do it, I could definitely do it. I loved writing. And so I loved Roald Dahl growing up. Um, and then as I got a little bit older, Terry Pratchett's sense of humor, because I felt like that was very, like, that was the next step after Roald Dahl in terms of that quirkiness and the weirdness, the weird takes in the world. Um, and now looking back on it, I see they're, they're very different. Terry Pratchett was doing a lot more satire and uh, a lot more kind-hearted than a lot of Roald Dahl stuff. Um, Terry Pratchett was, you know, constantly making political points and he's well ahead of his time in terms of representation, um, which I absolutely... I loved then the little bits that I could pick up and you look back at it now and you realize, oh, this, uh, this was so ahead of its time. It wasn't appreciated. And it's very easy to dismiss funny stories and particularly funny stories set in this entirely fan fantastical world as being light and fluffy. And they feel light and fluffy because they make you laugh. 
and they pull you along as they're making their point. But they always have a huge heart and a huge, uh, a huge message, a really important message underneath. And that's what I loved about him. I mean, he's, and I can go on about Terry Pratchett forever. Well, Sinead would be, Sinead is a huge Terry Pratchett. I'm, I've only come to Terry Pratchett recently, but I, and I don't, I think the covers pushed me away when I was younger. But I've like I've started reading them now and I'm like, oh, my God, why? Why didn't I read these when I was younger? They're so good. But I, I, something that somebody said on Twitter recently, actually, I forget now. Forgive me, Twitter. I forget who you are. But the point they made was really good is that Terry Pratchett's message, like part of the power of Terry Pratchett's work is that it 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 it's so, I'd say, it's so lighthearted. Are people dismissed it, I suppose, as being fluff when, you know, what he was actually yeah. saying was so powerful and so strong that it kind of allowed it to slip under the radar of like yeah. the you know the powers that be. But the people who he intended it for, the people who were reading him, really took it to heart, and 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 he he was able to affect such, I suppose, change in in his readers because he had this uh you know he sort of this wry tongue in cheek sort of way of of writing that you know he knew he was going to slip under the snooty heads you know and he was going to get to the people he really wanted to reach um and I think that's true and the I absolutely I've loved him since I was <laughs> snooty heads yeah that's um it. I I love him I've I read him since I was a kid or uh weird weird sisters was my my first one as well when I was about eight um and uh, I've been an, an obsessed obsessive fan of Terry Patrick ever since I I love him he's so wise yeah he passed I know I was Hi. gonna say and, and Ash, Ashling is dead on with what you said about him being so much kinder than yeah. Lowell. he just has such a such a humanity and such a such a kindness mm -hmm. about the way he the way he writes I, I love him yeah I think the other thing about the subtlety of his messages is that as a kid anything that feels like it's preaching to you is going to turn you off but you can internalize a lot of that kindness and a lot of uh, a lot of that um tolerance and understanding when you're reading a story that is is fun exciting and you can you don't realize that you're taking in that sort of message but you are and it you know yeah. sits with you when you're older absolutely um, which i think is great you know it went over the heads of people who wouldn't necessarily have agreed with it and i think it went over the heads of a lot of kids who still took the core message away without necessarily understanding but i think you know as an author he's 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 done so much good hasn't he like I mean he's he's shaped so many people and yeah. shaped so many so many lives and so many opinions I mean he's definitely changed my life completely um so yeah so I, I miss him I miss him I remember where I was when I heard he had passed away and oh. how 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 brokenhearted I was I cried for an hour oh. <laughs> so I miss him still yeah I was at work and I I was really struggling not to not to cry not and to cry just, yeah yeah just that feeling of, am I never going to get to like meet him or tell him what his books mean um to, to me, I mean, he knows what's yeah. yeah. Um, but actually, when I when I met my husband, uh, when we first went on our first date, um, we kind of we got on anyway. We were friends through the drama society, but first time we really sat down and chatted alone, we started talking about Terry Pratchett books, and we're like, "Oh my God, you love Terry Pratchett? I love Terry Pratchett!" And literally, the entire evening <laughs> vanished in the student bar in UCD. Just the pair of us sitting there, you know, fans fangirling fanboying fan people like over <laughs> <laughs> over this world and how much we loved it and how much we loved like death and mort and all those characters um and that was you know it went from kind of oh, yeah this guy is nice to okay i need to see him again i need to talk to him again uh, <laughs> so that that really did like change my life and i directed mort in the ucd drama society the next year so i was already dating my husband at the time 
but he did the voice for death because he can do a really good Christopher Lee impression. I did audition a lot of people <laughs> before I, I got to make sure that I cast the right person, but he was, he was a perfect death. And so like to me, like Terry Pratchett and Mort are literally, like you said, changed your life. It, it literally is like my life could have gone a whole different direction if I hadn't also met this guy who I was like, okay, you love Terry Pratchett, shortcut, you are an awesome person. <laughs> well, I wish, I wish I'd run into both of you in UCD student bar back in the day too. I would have been happy to, well, I wouldn't oh, have wanted to be nice. a third meal in that conversation, but uh, <laughs> it would be great to talk to fellow Terry Pratchett, Terry Pratchett fans. But we actually have managed to get this far into the chat without even asking the, the top question, which we always begin with, which was, Ashling O'Loughlin, are you story shaped? But I think we've established- and Clearly, clearly you, you are. are. Very much, but, um, very much I am. <laughs> Uh, yeah, would you have any any thoughts on how to expand on that question? What does it mean to you to be asked, are you story shaped or? Um... Um, I mean, I think stories shaped every part of who I am. Growing up with my dad meant that uh, the world was a constantly magical place. Yeah, he he saw he still sees the magic and everything. But when I was little, it was so huge because we could go for a walk and he would start talking talking about you know oh what do you think is you know in that crack in the pavement there if it split open what would happen this was his his way of bonding was to you know come up with stories together all the time um and he never wanted to destroy the magic in our lives he you know but even to the point where maybe another parent might have a little bit like when I was scared of monsters he refused to tell me monsters weren't real because he was like, well, I don't, I, I can't say that for sure. Was I don't he, know. he was a Susan Stowe Hellish then, basically. He basically said, yeah, okay, they exist. I'm going to beat them with a poker. They're going to go under the bed and now they're gone. This <laughs> like is in, what in he did. In Terry Pratchett, the character of Susan, yeah, she doesn't say yeah, there's no monsters. She just, she just says, yeah, they exist. I'm going to kill them though. That's fine. Yeah. Good. Go back to sleep. <laughs> and he would actually, he would actually teach me what I should do if I encountered a particular sort of monster. But he also knew he also knew me. He knew that him telling me that monsters weren't real wouldn't necessarily reassure me because I would I would be on that as far as you know. Team. Yeah. But also it's brilliant because it's giving you agency. Like giving you a certain yeah. amount of control. It's like, yeah, monsters monsters might exist and here are the monsters and here's what you do if you encounter any of the monsters. So it's giving you back some kind of exactly. power. Yeah, it's true, isn't that, it? That is A1 yeah. parenting, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I felt very confident that I knew what I, I could do if I encountered a ghost or a, a werewolf or a vampire. And he was definitely my first introduction into some of the stranger things in my book, Sinead, like um, some of the vampire lore that uh, that I work in that people don't necessarily know. I, I took directly from my dad's reassurance because he couldn't necessarily have me, um, you know, running around with stakes and <laughs> holy water would make a mess. But the, there are other ways that you can deal with a vampire that it was okay to keep under my pillow at night. Um, <laughs> Good. Gosh, well, that's, I mean, it's no surprise you ended up becoming an author or, or having the life you've had with a with parent like that. That's um, that, that's amazing. What a, what a brilliant. And we've had a few people on the podcast actually talking about the influence their parents had and um, particularly dads actually funnily enough you know that if 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 a parent or if, if a dad had that sort of playfulness you know as the child as the person was growing up you know that it really made such a, a difference to their life you know um and I, th I just think that's amazing it just it really shows you know how important it is to have that sense of story and that sense of kind of um 
the magic of, of existence you know when, when you're a parent because you know I know we're all, we're all parents here as well and I tried to do that with my little my little one uh, we were coming home from school a long time ago now I think it was a couple of years ago um, and we passed a pebble dashed wall and there was lots, lots of the pebble dash had kind of fallen onto the ground and she picked up a bit and she says what is that? And I said, well, what do you think it is? And we had to school, we decided it was a dragon's tooth. And we had a wow. whole story made about, about the dragon that had losing its teeth, you know, as we went home. Um, and uh, I just, it's just great, you know, to, to sort of, and I love that about your dad saying about the crack in the pavement, what happened if it opened up? So when I'm going home, when I'm going to collect her today, I'm going to do that. I'm going to find a crack in the pavement and say, right, what's in there? Yeah. <laughs> Let's have a look. <laughs> Let's get down and, and, ex and explore. <laughs> yeah, it's such a gift to a child to, again, let give them power over creating story like okay look at this look at this thing this seemingly ordinary thing what do you think it what do you think happens there what do you think it represents like over to you you make something yeah up. i love yeah. that and it's such it's such an important uh important lesson in imagination that you don't have to have to wait for inspiration to strike you can you can find it just by looking mm -hmm. at a random thing a regular thing and asking what if and going with the oddest person that you can come up with um and you've done you've done some pretty cool things in your in your life including you know uh, moving to canada for a while and, and living there where in canada um, were you um i was in toronto i lived in montreal oh you did i went to montreal a couple of times such a lovely place yeah it's a good place um yeah um, it's it was... on my bucket list i'd love to go to canada it's one of the top places i really want to see before I shuffle up this mortal coil. So I'm glad <laughs> both of you have had that experience. <laughs> Could you point to any stories, Ashlyn, in your life that you've, or any any stories that you've read or experienced or whatever, or loved that might have influenced your choices in life, you know, your career choices or your your um, the way your life has gone? I suppose we've talked a bit about meeting your husband through Terry Pratchett. <laughs> uh, any other stories in that vein? What brought you um, to Canada? Canada, so Canada was very much my husband wanting to go explore and have adventures. Um, I think I I felt like I'd already, you know, I, I could have an adventure sitting at the computer, so I didn't feel the same need to go out and actually do things, but I did follow him um, there because I wanted him to, I wanted to make sure that when we were, you know, in our 70s in the, in the armchairs and whatever, home we were in uh that we didn't have any regrets so I was like you know what yeah if you want to move to Canada I'll come to Canada with you fair enough and so we uprooted our lives and moved over there and um and once we were there um actually really enjoyed it it's really nice we lived in a really artsy area of Toronto called the Annex um which was absolutely beautiful and there were venues everywhere music venues uh, theater venues lovely little lights of cinema um and it became immediately obvious to me that i needed to start writing again because i missed all my friends and family um and so that's that's when i sat down and started writing the book that i wrote now which i guess was, was very inspired by missing my family and also by my obsession with vampire slayer which was uh definitely a big influence um i guess that's a big influence on my life the, the strong quippy individuals um and things like buffy and even like back to the plays that we did in college i, I was always much more of a like shakespeare's comedies fans much to do about nothing and that sort of thing um it was a lot of fun um do you think that um 
uh, moving to Canada and, and you said you lived in an area that had a load of like venues and, and theatres and stuff. Um, did that kickstart or did you did you get a chance, I mean, to do any uh, any writing for, for theatre while you were there or did you just, were you more of a, a an audience member? Mm, I was an audience member for sure. I wrote for theatre when I was in college though. Um, yeah. And actually that was after, um, after initially meeting my husband, he came to see a play that I wrote, uh, which was, um, my own black comedy version of Othello called Iago, where I made Iago the, yeah, I mean, he kind of is already the protagonist in Othello because he's, I mean, Othello's the main character, but Iago is the one who drives all the action. Um, Iago's the one who manipulates everyone and he's the one who turns around and talks to the audience a lot um, and tells them what he's up to. So I, I always had, had had a soft spot for Iago because he's so cunning and so manipulative and so awful yeah uh, and people love him anyway because he's a villain I love that you you seem to do that in your books you seem to sort of uh, turn the tables and tell the story from the other side I think that that's really cool um but I, I just love I, I wonder um I, I'm not a person I'm not I never even tried to write a play or I've never tried to write any kind any kind of dramatic uh screenplay or anything like that and I wouldn't even be not that, not that I don't like going to the theatre but I, I don't go really um so I don't know how what do you think that your love for drama has influenced the way you write or are the things you like to write about um maybe I I think it's probably influenced the way I write and that I write I enjoy writing the first person um I'm probably quite a, a chatty style so your dialogue your dialogue um, is I so guess. strong thank you <laughs> yeah I think I, I enjoy that because I enjoy the process you know when you're writing and they say to read your dialogue out loud or to read your, your book out loud and see how it sounds. I really enjoy that. I really, really enjoy that. And I enjoy trying to write it almost like a, a one person show where if I, I got up with my book um, and an audience, I can imagine myself sort of acting it out. So I guess in that way, that's it's helpful for um, the voice, I think, to, to try and make sure that I've got the character right and that it, it reads in a quick and pacey way. Um, yeah, that sounds like a really helpful skill to have to be able to kind of. And would you say you're kind of you can kind of visualize your your stories? Can could you can you kind of imagine them being played out as you as you write? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I I very much enjoy sitting down with music, either before I write or after I've written a scene, um, and going through it in my head, imagining it playing out like a like a movie scene. Um, I don't necessarily play music while I'm writing because that really distracts me and I start drifting off into my little head cinema and forgetting to actually write it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but before and after, yeah, I definitely visualise it and I, it becomes really real. I don't know if you guys do this, but I tend to act out what I'm writing, which makes writing in coffee shops very hard. <laughs> <laughs> but very entertaining like, for everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll, be, I'll be pulling the faces and in the action scenes, I have to get up and like choreograph what I'm doing or I'll be sitting in my chair but also like throwing punches before I write just to make sure I've, I've got it right in my head you have the mechanics of the movements correct and whatever that, that's yeah terrible. I don't yeah. know yeah. and maybe this is the thing everybody does but definitely something that I as a frustrated and terrible actress really enjoy I've thrown my back out writing writing <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing I'm not, I'm no good at at all is, is, is acting. Uh, I never was ever had any skill for that, but I'd say it really does come in handy when you're trying to write your own books. Um, I'd say being, being an actor and having familiarity with stagecraft, I'd say it really, really does help. So, so good for you. <laughs> it, it's helpful. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm a bad actress, but I think the two feed into each other in, um, 
getting inside characters' heads and, you know, being able to, to try to understand different points of view and where people are coming from. The, those two work very well together in terms of acting and writing. I think that's probably what drew me to, to acting from writing. I was bad at it. I was better at doing it in writing. Um, the, the fact that you just have to get inside someone's head and live in another imaginary place. Are, I think there is a lot of crossover and I think you see a lot of actors who write as well. Um, yeah. And it's never surprising to me when they're exceptional at it. I've listened to lots of um, lots of writers, lots of very successful writers who were former actors or frustrated actors. I think David Nichols is one. I think maybe Jesse Burton. Um, but it seems to it seems to crop up quite a few times that writers yeah. there's a kind of certain strand of writers that have this acting background and it gives their work this kind of aliveness. Um, Emer McBride as well she trained as an actress and what she said it gave her is it's, it's, it's almost exactly what you're saying it gave her that ability to get inside a character and kind of live in and build a character from the inside yeah I think that's very true and do you have any particular plays that you enjoyed uh, reading or seeing staged or anything that you've enjoyed in the past it feels really basic but like the importance of being earnest and what you do about nothing um the the very quippy funny ones are my my obsessions um I love plays with a lot of banter I know that there's brilliant plays that deal with deep topics and you know are wonderfully artistic and people absolutely adore them I'll I'll adore them when I go see them but the ones that stick with me are the ones that that make me laugh and cheer me up and I think I tend to be drawn to that in television and in books as well um I find the world can suck on a regular basis. Some, some people find it really cathartic to go to a show or read something that helps them process uh, how bad things are. And I like, it. I like to use it as an escape. I like to read something that's going to make me laugh and take my mind off things and brighten up my day and can make me come out feeling like a little bit less down on the world. Um, again, usually they usually have a wonderful point to make about something and, and there's always a message there but it, <laughs> that's always second to the escape and the entertainment for me um that's just that's just what I enjoy doing as I said I know a lot of people find being challenged and and um processing things through entertainment um very cathartic I just need to <laughs> I need to escape my head my head gets too uh too full of the awfulness of the world anyway so I don't don't really want to dwell on it in my downtime yeah well you're not alone you're not alone absolutely it's it's a really powerful effect that literature and and drama and any kind of I suppose artistic diversion can have that it can take you out of those dark places and, and put you somewhere better um I, I think you're absolutely right to do that uh and it's I think we're really privileged that we have this ability you know or that we have this ability to attend plays or or read the books that, that we enjoy um and that's that's what they're for so so good <laughs> great great message do you have any particular stories I suppose we have sort of talked a bit about it but besides stuff like Grimm and um, Anderson and Roald Dahl and Terry Patish moving on from that do you have any other stories that might have shaped the work that you've produced so far or the, the work that you that you uh, have written The Princess Bride was always really oh, interesting to me brilliant oh, mm. amazing. I grew up I watching that. it oh, it's and just then I read the it best. when I was yeah it's amazing isn't it and the book yeah so much fun and so clever 
and um, that that's a whole extra level um yeah. where it's you know the dad reading the book to the little boy and he's he's editing it um to make it palatable for a little kid and I loved reading all the in-between bits but knowing the story knowing the the movie you kind of know where it's going um that part the fantasy part so all the in-between bits with the the character development of the dad um, and his little journey from being kind of a jerk to being a nice guy through reading this story to, to his son. Um, I absolutely love that. I find it really subversive. One of my friends recommended it to me when I was in college and was saying, you know, yeah, yeah, no, it, it's autobiographical. Um, and he actually comes off really badly in it. I'm very surprised at the things he put in. And I was like reading it going, it's, it's all fiction. It's just so well told. It's such well told fiction um, that you wind up almost believing it. So I really enjoyed that. Um, and again, it plays with the idea of old stories and what you need to do to update them and the tropes you need to keep, the tropes you can toss aside. Um, I also just love like Stephen King books, um, Carrie and Misery. And I I haven't read a ton of the the newer ones, like things or you know, things like um, I don't know, haunted clothes mangles or whatever. <laughs> Have you read his new book, um, Fairy Tale? No, but I'm dying to get my hands on that. I definitely will. I feel like my TBR, my my pile of books that I want to read, <laughs> is about to topple over and consume me. Um, with the book coming out, Big Bad Me coming out, I haven't had a huge amount of time to actually read all the books that I want to read because I've been doing an awful lot of um, other things, writing prom promotional stuff, and I'm dying to get back to just reading. Um, and that will be on my list, but I'd say that's on my list for next year, maybe, because I have I have a whole stack of spooky books that I want to read, uh, <laughs> it's because it's October, um, and I have, like, Mean and the Undead, Mean and the Slayers, that sort of thing, are top of my list, and I've been dying to read them, and I just haven't gotten to it, um, but yeah, Stephen King is so good at character, that's what always struck me when I was reading, um, when you see the adaptations, it's all about the monsters, um unless unless it's something like it where they did a mini series and they really got to you know when they really get to delve into the characters it's great but a lot of the movies I feel like fail because they don't notice that the focus should be on the on the characters with the monster sort of coming in um and they focus too much on the monsters his, his characters are amazing and it always made me take a step back how much you want things to be okay for the characters even though you know it won't be because it's that kind of story <laughs> because um he really gets you attached to them even though he's constantly writing about writers who are you know <laughs> under <-appreciated. laughs> so maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons I connect to him uh, <laughs> I, love, I love the stand is my favorite Stephen King I, I, re I revisit that periodically although I know it's a massive book so I don't read it every every year but uh, but I do I love that one he's he's been really influential on me as well um, and it's funny, I think you're right. I think a lot of the dramatic adaptations of his books have really let the story down in so many ways. I don't think he translates very well to screen. Um, but yeah, he's definitely definitely a, a writer I admire as well. I've never read any Stephen King because I am... Have you not? Oh, I'm too scared. Yeah. <laughs> too much of a chicken. Yeah, well, that's that's fair enough, I suppose. Um, yeah, but The Stand, I think, is a work of genius. I really do. I was I was reading it during my the time I was writing my master's thesis. I remember a long time ago. 
And uh, I remember I used to sort of treat myself to it. I'd, I'd work for, let's say, an hour on my thesis and then I'd, I'd read a chapter of The Stand as a treat. And then, I'd, you know, that's how I got through it. Um, I, I, I kind of rationed it out that way. But it's it's a, it's a really, really brilliant, really brilliant book. Um, so yeah. I recommend Stephen King, Susan. I think you should give it a try. Oh, but, I don't I mean, know. I'm just I, gonna... I think it is. It's his characters. Yeah, the characters are fantastic. As, as okay. Ashton says, the characters are they feel like they you could you could meet them in person and they're real people. They're incredible. Yeah, you could read some of his fantasy, uh, like The Eyes of the Dragon or okay. the Different Seasons novellas, which aren't really horror. Uh, well, maybe The Apt Pupil is pretty awful, but there's no monsters. But are they scary? Except... Because scary, I can't really do scary. Well, Stand By Me is in it, and the, the version of the, the Shawshank Redemption. Okay. Um, things like that. So they're, they're scary in that people are awful. That kind of scary. Okay. Oh, I <laughs> will. Like, there's no monster. I will try. I've been convinced. I'd forgotten. Stand by me was was his actually. He that that's that's a brilliant movie, and I'd forgotten he yeah. had written that story. Maybe it's only his real horror then that doesn't often translate properly to screen. But that's genuinely that's a brilliant movie, yeah. and a brilliant story. But do you th- do you think read do you think reading horror you can kind of control the, the the horror of it a bit? You know when it when it's in your own imagination you can kind of set you know because I'm not I'm not a big horror. I don't like do I don't horror do horror movies in any way because. I find them overwhelmingly scary, but if it's a book, I can manage because it's kind of you can control. You can set the levels yourself. Yeah, you can pace it, and you can, you can, yeah, you can control what you're. I'm the same. Well, I, I do love watching horror movies, but I don't know about you. Um, having kids makes it way harder to watch oh God, bad yeah. things happen. Yeah. To, yeah, you know, slasher movies and that sort of thing. Where before, when I was a teenager, when I was in my twenties, um, I was I was fine with like watching. Drew Barrymore at the start of Scream get carved and I was fine and I watched it again uh recently and I saw the parents come home and I had to turn it off and uh, cry and then go back mm, you know um, I never was even able for that even that that was too much for me even when I wasn't a parent but absolutely you're right it gets exponentially worse when you when you do have, have kids yeah. it does and yeah. it's nothing to do with you developing a whole new level of empathy it is entirely to do with I think me at least transplanting my kids into into the place of the kids on screen and imagining like that happening to them and I can't stop it but in books it's easier you can you can stop you can take a break if it gets too much um, or you don't have to you can try and focus on the words and not visualize it um so I absolutely love horror and thrillers I love reading them um and I'm obsessed with things like Cat Ellis's books um and that sort of you know Harrow Lake um or say you know Cynthia Murphy and Catherine Foxfield these days um and they have brilliant characters where you don't want to see anything bad happen to them and you know you will and it's not as bad as as watching you know a scream movie <laughs> I'll still watch the scream I still watch the movies but like um yeah I, I find brilliant I, I would much rather complete stereotypes that I don't care about than well-crafted characters on screen sometimes <laughs> <laughs> if it's a slasher not if it's a Stephen King story right well that's great because it's horror horror movies or horror books I should say are I, I don't have a whole lot of knowledge of of, of any of, of really good titles in in that genre um do you, do you have any other really good ones that you'd recommend if somebody was totally new to horror or scary books as a as a genre what would you what would be a primer um <laughs> so anything by Cat Alice so there's there's Harrow Lake um Burden Falls or Wicked Little Deeds, depending on if you're reading it in the UK or in the US, it's Wicked Little Deeds in the UK and Ireland. Um, anything by Cynthia Murphy or 
Catherine Foxfield is also, are also great. They'd be my, my three go-tos. Um, Amy McCall writes very cool vampire stories that are kind of horror and adventure. Um, so they, they're a little bit more buffy esque but also kind of gory. They definitely fit the horror genre. Um, I, Naomi Gibson writes sort of sci-fi thriller, which I think also verges into, into horror in terms of the things that happen. Um, and I just read The Haunting of Tyrese Walker by J.P. Rose, which is a uh, teen technically as opposed to YA, but that is brilliantly spooky. Um, I don't know if, if it had been YA, <laughs> if I'd been reading YA level of, of terror um, as J.P. Rose can write it, I don't know if I could have handled it. Because it's, you know, this is, this is definitely one of the ones, there's a lot of bugs and creepy crawlies and stuff. One of those ones I had to put the book down, walk away, come back to it. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> and when you sit down to write a story, are you thinking mm -hmm. about yourself consciously as a story shaper? Like, like because you, your work plays with tropes and rewrites fairy tales and like how how do you interpret the idea of you as a story shaper? I very much enjoy playing with tropes and playing with stories. And when I sit down to write, I'm definitely initially writing to entertain myself which means that I'm incredibly self-indulgent with what I write. So um, the, the quips, the dialogue, the pop culture references, everything goes in. Uh, and then in terms of shaping the story, I do kind of think of it like, so that's, that's story play. That is not a story. That is a self-indulgent blob of story play. Um, that I then need to go back and I need to hone it. I need to chop away everything that doesn't work for the story. I need to read through it, need to read it out loud um, and try and find like the core of every scene. What's it bringing to the story? What's the purpose of it? Does it need to stay even if I love it? And quite often it doesn't because um, my having fun is, it's a lot of fun, but I, I need to definitely be more disciplined when I come to actually getting a story that other people are going to want to read as well. Not everyone wants to know everything that happens inside my head. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely, another thing about the artist saying, you know, oh, the way that I, that I carve a horse is I take a, a block of marble and I chop away everything that's not a horse. Yeah. That's what I have to do, just chop away everything that is not the story. Um, and it takes a long time. It takes a lot, a lot of work usually um, to make it flow and feel like it didn't, take that much work um so yeah I definitely feel like a, a shaper of stories and uh, in terms of playing with tropes and that sort of thing I do it to entertain myself and I hope like it. <laughs> well, it's, it works very well it's, it's something you're really good at it's, it's definitely a strength in Big Bad Me you know all the all the sort of sort of in little references that you make or things you might pick up on that you might think of as familiar from um from watching stuff like Buffy uh you know it's just it, it really you, you you take those things but you make something so so new out of them um and uh, so, so you, you pay you pay homage or homage however you say that word uh to to your source material I suppose but you you, you turn something totally new and fun uh out of the things that you're referencing and it's, it's you do a really really great job so Keep up the good work is all I can say, because the things you're doing to entertain yourself, they're entertaining everybody else as well. So, uh, so good you. job. But uh, what was lovely about what you were saying there about the about it being like clay is that you have this, you have this idea of stories of these malleable 
flexible things that you can play around with and shape and reshape and I love that idea yeah for sure and it, it should be it should be fun because it's really hard to you know living you know write stories and try and get them out there and live in the publishing world like my like my dad said when I was growing up it has to be fun otherwise what's the point uh, what's yeah. the point or you'd give up wouldn't you yeah yeah exactly yeah ultimately for enjoyment yeah you're absolutely right. Um, but as we come close to sort of the, the wrap up for today's episode, um, I'd like to ask the cheeky question uh, that what is next from you in terms of upcoming projects, if you can tell us um, without getting in trouble with your publisher? Um, <laughs> and if you can't tell us, give us a hint. So I have nothing else under contract. I got one book deal. So nothing, um, nothing is guaranteed, but I am playing with a couple of things that I'm really, really enjoying. There's a ghost story um, set in a fake version of Greystones, which is all that I can really say about that. Greystones is where my parents live. So every time I go up there, it's an excuse to reimmerse myself in that world, that ghost world that, I'm, that I've been playing with. I can't do horror, but I love a ghost story. Oh, good. That's, yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to reading more ghost stories as well, because I know some really, really good ones um have come out recently and I'm I'm gonna get my my hand on those but when I say recently I mean like in the last few years that I missed because I was focusing on werewolves vampires that kind of yeah um and then I'm writing in mid-grade I'm gonna see how that goes it's much more for my kids um so they can have something to read (laughs) Um, (laughs) they try to read big bad me and I don't stop them because I know it's it's gonna be too old for them so I let them read as far as they could get into which was the first couple of chapters um but I, I'm writing something kind of for them and again we'll see how it goes but it's an awful lot of fun to play with and I'm really enjoying the characters I'm enjoying the pace and I'm enjoying um being able to flex my my silliness even a, a little bit more than I do with <laughs> Evie and Big Bad Me. And does it have a does it have a horror or a sort of a scary feel your your middle grade no no it doesn't it's more um it's 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 enough it's a kind of a feel people are writing very well in these days uh you know the kind of horror or sort of you know beginner horror I guess from from middle grade readers yeah yeah my my daughter's really into that kind of thing like Jennifer Killick and uh, yeah Jennifer Killick's brilliant isn't she yeah Yeah. that kind of thing is she's super into it and she absolutely adores it and now this is much more I guess the stuff that I wrote before when I was a teenager wasn't particularly scary um at all um and it's not it's not a fairy tale retelling but it's much more of me just getting my my kids movie by bomb um watching all the fun things like jumanji um that sort of thing and, and trying to write something in that tone um brilliant sounds great i'm not I'm, pre- I'm pre-ordering it instantly <laughs> <laughs> sounds like my kind of thing and just before we go do your, do your kids think you're super cool that you publish books when you were a teenager does that does that does that like does that give you kudos um, <laughs> Having done it while I was a teenager, no, no. Um, oh. th- those books are old and they're not interested in them. <laughs> but the the one that's come out now, they're really proud of. Oh, yeah. What about you? <laughs> that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I mean, your book looks amazing. I mean, when I saw the cover, I know it, it went down a storm on social media because it's it's such a brilliant, brilliant cover. Can you give a shout out to your illustrator? Because I, I forget who they are. Yes. Um, Jay McFerrin, uh, Jonathan McFerrin, but Jay McFerrin professionally. Um is amazing um he's uh, an illustrator from Belfast and when he 
bend over the rest for Big Bad Me. I, I burst into tears, oh. like literally, because I, I had sent descriptions of my characters and what I was, you know, what I was hoping, something along those lines. And he sent it back and I was like, oh, it's them. <laughs> like they're there <laughs> and they're staring at me. And it was the most surreal moment because he, he absolutely nailed it. Like I, I'd sent on um, a Pinterest board for each of the characters in terms of what they might wear. But the way he, he pulled together everything and just presented exactly what I had in my head just blew my mind. And That's like, amazing. I was literally, yeah, my heart jumped. <laughs> what, a, what a great experience that must have been for you. I mean, I just, I love, I mean, the cover of that book, it, it looks like it's a photograph staged with three actual people because it's so, the quality of the artist is so, so top notch. Um, and it's, it really jumps off the shelf. Uh, so I really hope that it has been jumping off shelves into readers, into readers' hands. Um, uh, it's, it's a fantastic book. <laughs> um, and if you haven't yet read Big Bad Me, uh, dear story shaped listener, then I suggest you go and get one and have a have a have a good read and enjoy it. It's such a, such a fun, such a fun, but also such a scary <laughs> in, in its own way. Um, or at, at times, as a book, it's it's a brilliant story, um, and I really really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and it's been a pleasure to talk to Ashlyn O'Loughlin today um, with her wonderful story of her story-shaped life uh, that's brought her all the way to Canada and back. Um, and, and thanks so much, Ashlyn, for sharing all the stories of your stories, I guess, uh, the, re- the, the ways that you've made the stories that you wrote when you were, when you were younger and, and how they've all fed into the wonderful accomplishment that is Big Bad Me. Um, uh, it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you so yeah. much for being here today with us. Um, Thanks so much for having me on. Not at all. It's a, it's a joy. It's been bad. <laughs> sure has. Um, but as we wrap up today, uh, just a little reminder again to say that if you have enjoyed this episode of Story Shaped, and if you're enjoying Story Shaped in general, uh, do please remember to leave us a, a rating or a review wherever you get your wherever you get your podcasts, um, and help us to find some some new some new listeners. Um, any, any new ears on the podcast are is good news to us uh, so thanks so much for, for listening and thanks so much uh, for uh, being with us today Ashlyn and thanks to Susan and it's goodbye from me goodbye from me <laughs> and goodbye, goodbye from, from me Ashlyn <laughs> great <laughs> until next time see you later Story Shaped bye 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 you've been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart follow us on Twitter at Story Shaped Pod And don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts.